0: Isaiah 58, please turn there. Sometimes we can mistakenly think that any kind of devotion in the name of God is honoring to God. Right? Sometimes we think if I'm doing it in the name of God, it must be honoring to God. But what in fact is not uncommon in the Bible is to see acts of devotion in God's name to be entirely rejected by God himself, to be unacceptable and not honoring to him. In fact, if you read the Bible, you'll find a history of acts of devotion to God in the name of God that are not honoring to him. And so we're just going to begin by looking at a couple of those. We could go on and on all day, but we won't. (laughs) So I'll give you a couple of them. In Numbers 14, God's people have crossed the Red Sea. They have defeated the entire Egyptian army, or God has defeated the entire Egyptian army. They have drowned in the depths of the sea. And now they have arrived at Jericho, the, the gateway into the promised land. So God was going to give them the promised land. They were simply to go in and take it. But what did they do? They refused. They refused to go in. They were fearful. They were scared. Jericho was bigger than they were. And so they refused to go in. So what does God say? God says, because you failed to trust in me, therefore you will wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Before you enter the promised land. So, what is their response? Do you remember what they did? They felt sorrowful that they didn't do what they were supposed to do, so they took it into their own hands to go back and attack and defeat Jericho. Right? What a lot of devotion they have. They are determined now to do the right thing. So, what happened? Well, they were routed and defeated miserably. In Numbers 14, verse 39 through 45. God crushed his people at the hands of Jericho. How about later in 1 Samuel 4, verse 3? When you find God's people are now living in the promised land, but they were threatened by the Philistines. And we have to remember that the people had become so corrupt From the priesthood all the way down, they were an incredibly corrupt people. And so the Lord brought the Philistines against them. And the Philistines defeated them. And so they ask rightly, this is their response to the defeat that God brought at the hand of the Philistines. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Well, that's a good question to ask. And so what is their response? They said, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So we are told just this amazing picture, okay? Imagine this. They take the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God, and uh, they bring it into their midst. And... uh, it says, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Almost like an earthquake. Everything shook. You could, if you're a feeling person, you would have said, God is present with us. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. I can feel it. Can you imagine that? If you're a feeling person, if, you're, if you live based on feelings, there is no doubt that God is moving among them. You would have that tingly feeling. God is with us. And it says that even the Philistines were terrified. And what was the result? Well, it says that the Philistines made a great slaughter of 30,000 of Israel's foot soldiers. The ark was captured and the corrupt priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. What did God think of their devotion? Well, not a whole lot, right? Right? We can go on and on with such stories. We should therefore, I think what we should conclude from this is that we should not be surprised when we hear about someone's devotion not being honored by God. It should rather make us examine our own hearts. We need to examine our own hearts and our own devotion and not immediately assume that God is accepting it. We have to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, am I coming to God the way he prescribes for me to come to him? We just can't come to God any way we want to. And we can't just determine that my way is the way acceptable to God. But that is the way the world thinks. But that's not the way the Bible says it really is. It's not even about how much you put into it about what does God require. We need a sobriety check, don't we? So last week we looked at how God acknowledged that his people were expressing great devotion to him in verse 2. Let me read verse 2 again. We're going to go quickly over what we went over last week just to uh, introduce this passage. But remember, God acknowledged that his people We're expressing great devotion to him. In verse 2, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And if you remember, specifically, the way they were expressing devotion to God was through their fasting, wasn't it? God had prescribed fasting, particularly on the Day of Atonement. And they probably did it on other days as well. But they figured that if they were fasting, God would certainly be honored by it. If they were refraining from food, God would certainly be honored by it. In his name of all reasons to do it in. God has to honor it, right? But God was not pleased with their devotion of fasting at all. Basically, all their devotion of fasting was worthless to God. God wasn't hearing their prayers. It wasn't arising to God's ears. He wasn't listening to them. You can hear the confusion in their questioning of God. In verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They don't get why their actions of devotions are not honoring to God. They don't get why God isn't hearing their fasting. And in fact, they are more than questioning God here. They are upset and angry at God. They believe that God must hear them and God must respond to them. They believe that God is the problem here. There's something wrong with God. If anything, this means you must not automatically assume your devotion is honoring to God. That's what this means. How many of us have have assumed that I prayed a prayer when I was younger, I must be honoring to God? God must have honored my prayer. Or I go to church, therefore, God must be honored with at least part of my life. How many of us have just assumed that? But we could be wrong in our thinking. We could be wrong. And isn't it important to know whether we are wrong or not? Isn't it important to know what honors God? We need to listen to God because he tells us what honors to him. And it is our responsibility, it is our position to bow to God. (laughs) As creatures, the right position before God is to bow to him and to his word. Otherwise, we're in rebellion against him, even if we think we're honoring him. So what does our compassionate physician do? He cares for his people by explaining why their fasting was not not honoring to him, why it was worthless to him. What a compassionate and gracious God. He tells them what is wrong with what they're doing. Man, we should be listening. He says that their fasting was hypocritical, that it was fake, that it was a veneer of spirituality, that it was not real, and it was hypocritical because it was not coming from an authentic heart of love for God. And listen to what God says exposed their hypocrisy. Their hypocrisy was exposed or revealed by their failure to care for other people. Their failure to care for other people, to care about justice, God's justice, to care about serving and loving others revealed that they did not care for God Himself. It revealed that they did not love God Himself. They were not motivated by love for God or love for each other. Rather, they were motivated by a love for themselves. And you could tell by the way they were treating people that they were supremely self centered. <laughs> They were using people for their own means. Is this not painful for us to hear at times? But how necessary is it that we, that, the, that, we, that we receive the scalpel from God? How necessary is it, and we said this last week, that we receive the wounds from God? That is the only way we're going to be healed. Is if we come to God His way and that's going to hurt it's going to hurt our pride, it's going to crush us, but that's exactly where we need to be. And I don't know about you, but I was crushed a little last week. <laughs> I needed to hear what God's word says. So the great physician doesn't end exposing the problem, he also graciously explains the kind of fasting that does honor him. He is honored by devotion that comes out of, that, that is, is born out of a love for God that loves people. This means, as we said last week, that we need a regenerated heart. We need to be born again. We are dead in our sins, in our trespasses and sins. We need new life. We need a miracle. We can't just make ourselves love people. We can't just make ourselves do the right thing. Out of a good tree comes good fruit. Out of a bad tree bears bad fruit. And we are all bad trees and we bear bad fruit. And we need to be saved by a mighty and powerful God. And such a heart will express itself through generally, genuinely caring for others and it will grow. And it will want to love others and want to grow because it will love God. And God is saying here, you just can't separate who you are from how you live. That's what he's saying. You can't separate who you are from how you live your life. And I didn't mention this last week, but I think it's really important that we understand that believers, those who are born again and regenerated, can do good works. And they will. I was talking to someone uh, a couple weeks ago who was taught very differently. They were taught that believers' works were as filthy rags. (laughs) They couldn't do anything good. And uh, the truth is, and it's really important we understand this, this, that as unbelievers you were enemies of God. And everything you did, even your good works, were as filthy rags. They were worthless. Because they were not done in faith towards God. But Christians' works are not filthy rags. They are pleasing to God. Even our imperfect works, which all of our works are somewhat imperfect, as children of God, please our Father in some ways. I am pleased when my son does works to honor me. (laughs) Right? I am pleased with him, even if they're not perfect. And yet I want to help him and encourage him and chastise him and discipline him so that he will grow and his works will reflect the honor that they should reflect, right? And the same is true with God, right? This is because we're a new creation that is created by God for good works. And they are good works. And they do honor God. And he is pleased with them. Praise God. (laughs) So we ended with incredibly great promises that God gives to those who honor him with their life because they are They are changed and transformed into his image. They are his people. And they will display the type of devotion that leads to blessing. Incredible blessings for those who live out the authentic Christian faith. So today we're continuing to look at the type of devotion that God blesses. But today we are not looking as much at fasting as at the sabbath. And so why might God be using the argument of fasting and the arguments of the sabbath to show us what kind of devotion honors him? Why why these two devotions when there are so many other things he could have mentioned? And I think perhaps because of failure and fasting exposes a failure to love other people, whereas failure to keep the Sabbath exposes a failure to love God. They used people while they were fasting for their own, for their own desires, and they failed to delight in God while Sabbath keeping. <laughs> and so it kind of hits the whole gamut, doesn't it? They failed to love others, and they failed to delight in God. Their devotions were corrupt. That's what he's saying here. Perhaps also to make it clear that God is not against ceremony. He's not against devotion. He is for it. He even prescribes it so long as it is done his way and out of the right heart. It is the heart that matters. And the heart that is right with God will look like something. It will look like something that he prescribes. So of all the requirements that God made of his people... The Sabbath is perhaps the most foreign to us. And probably when we first hear it, we think, what in the world does that have to do with me? That's probably the last thing that you would think is of any importance to you or me. And there are plenty of reasons why we might think this way, and I'll just name a few. One of them is that we hear the Pharisees, don't we, in the New Testament, and they distorted it incredibly. And so it might give us a bad taste for the Sabbath. But Jesus was never against the Sabbath, he was for it. Or perhaps Sabbath keeping represents an attack on the lifestyles that we love. You see, we often don't have any value for rest that's not based on entertainment. Let me say that again. We often don't have any value for rest that's not based on entertainment. Nor do we value work that's not accomplished by us. And notice that, that's the opposite side of it, isn't it? We often don't value work that's not accomplished by us. And so the Sabbath is really a double whammy, isn't it? Against everything we love. So it would be healthy for us to be reacclimated with the Sabbath and to understand what it's all about. So that's the big question we're going to ask. What is the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath all about? The Sabbath rest was established by God after he completed the creation of the world. In Genesis 2 verse 2 through 3. And you can read that yourself. So what does it mean that God rested? I mean, God doesn't need rest. God is God. He's infinitely great. Well, for God to rest means that he is finished with his work. It means he is satisfied with his work. It means that his work is good. And he's acknowledging it. To rest signifies that his work is finished. And now he is going to enjoy it. He is enjoying the goodness, the greatness, the satisfying nature of the great work that he accomplished. So in a sense you can say he sits back or stands back. And savors the completeness and the grandness and the gloriousness, the beauty of the work that he accomplished. Now God commanded his people in the Old Testament to keep the Sabbath day by ceasing to do their own work and rather to rest in his finished work. In other words, think about this, they were to acknowledge his work as being complete, finished, and good. With God, they were to stand back and savor the the completeness, the grandeur, the beauty, and the glory of what God had accomplished and finished in creating the world. In so doing, they would acknowledge that God is the source of all good things. And isn't this the very problem, according to Romans, that we fail to give thanks to God? That is the very heart of all sin, isn't it? And so here we are to acknowledge that every good thing comes from God, that God is the creator of everything, and everything good comes from him. He is the fountain of every blessing. That's what it means to be restored, isn't it? To see God as the fountain of every good blessing, that's what it means to be a, to be a believer, to be, a, to be saved, is to have a heart that overflows with gladness and the goodness of God. We would say that all our blessings come from the grace of God and not our own labor. The Sabbath was also a type of rest, a type of rest. I emphasize a type of it, anticipating the true rest that was coming. It was a shadow of the rest that was coming with Christ. When he would accomplish the work of salvation. So the Sabbath would not only point his people back to creation in its finished work, but also forward to the work of Christ in the new creation that he would accomplish. So the Sabbath was a reminder that God who creates is also the God who saves and also the God who sanctifies. He is the source of all good things. And isn't it good for us just to stop for a moment and enjoy the rest that we have in Christ? To think that all good things come through him. We did not make ourselves, we do not sustain ourselves. It is all by His grace that we have any goodness today. And we are dependent on Him for everything. And we must remember and acknowledge that. Now, according to Hebrews 4 verse 9, we entered the Sabbath rest when by faith we entered Christ as our Savior. Let me read uh, Hebrews 4 verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, it's important to understand that we will not fully experience the fullness of that rest until Christ returns. But if you are in Christ, you have entered that rest. You have tasted of the reality of the rest. Our works are not the basis for our salvation. Our works do not keep us saved. Our works do not sanctify us. It is Christ who saves us. It is Christ who made us. It is Christ who saves us. It is Christ who preserves us. It is Christ who sanctifies us. It is Christ who will glorify us. It is all because of Christ. And the rest acknowledges that. So for us to enjoy the Sabbath rest and I say enjoy the rest we already have, would mean for us to be aware of our work does not save us and that it is God who supplies all our needs. And it's to take our rightful dependence on God as his creatures. We must remember that we are not the center of the universe and we need to be reminded of that. Uh, We need reminders, don't we, all the time that we are not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe and we must take our rightful place Before him. That's the importance of the Sabbath. You could say the Sabbath was instituted by God in order to keep you from self worship. Think about this it helps to keep us from our addiction to work, our enslavement to productivity, our workaholism, as if we were the center of the world, as if we were all important. But in a more positive way, you might say the Sabbath was instituted by God to help, him, to help encourage to keep him at the center of our lives, as he should be, where he belongs, so that we would rest, worship, and delight in him. It's an aid to keep God at the center of our lives. That's what it's about. And that's how the world is supposed to re- re- revolve rightly around him, right? That's the only way we can function properly in this world is if we acknowledge and live in light of the reality that he is the center of all things and he holds us together. And that's the very problem with the world today, isn't it? You might even say this. The Sabbath is God's provision of a feast. A feast that he invites you to in order to delight in all that he is. We feed At this feast, by delighting in the truths of all that God is for us, and we are filled up by resting in the truth of all that He is. What a delight the Sabbath is. Now, there's a real danger in me trying to boil this down into too simplistic of thoughts, but I think it would be helpful for me to explain it a little further. Both of these practices, and what I mean by practices are fasting and the Sabbath, express different realities of feasting. They are two sides of the same coin, you might say. The fast is abstinence from feasting on lesser things and longing for the true feast of God. You might say you come to God empty with a great hunger for him, resolved to receive nothing less than him. You will not be satisfied with anything but God. Sabbath keeping, on the other hand, is feasting or gorging yourselves on the reality of all that God is. You could say that you feast by faith on the fullness of Christ by enjoying the reality of all that He is. So, fast and Sabbath together express the whole picture, and that it is not merely about what you refuse or deprive yourselves of, which you take away from yourselves but also what you enjoy and delight in. And that's absolutely essential that it's not just what we take away from ourselves in fasting, but it's also what we receive and delight in and rejoice in and feast on. We need to not not only deprive ourselves of things of this world that are worthless and do not bring lasting joy, but also we need to feast on that which is filling enjoy joy giving and delightful, eternally delightful and savor him. So the basic point of verses 13 through 14 is that there is a certain way of Sabbath keeping that honors God and there's a certain way of Sabbath keeping that does not honor God. There's a certain way of Sabbath keeping that, that God blesses and there's a certain way of Sabbath keeping that God does not bless. In other words, You can say there's a fake, inauthentic, hypocritical veneer of Sabbath-keeping that looks like the real deal. And there's a real, authentic Sabbath-keeping that actually honors God. And he's going to tell us what the real, authentic way of doing it is. Now notice that this is an if-then formula. If you do this, God says, then these blessings will be the result and that 's the way it 's written here it 's very clear and very obvious in verses thirteen through fourteen so God explains in verse thirteen what you must turn away from doing and what you must do if you 're to honor him with your sabbath keeping first, you must no longer trample or desecrate the Sabbath. so the Sabbath here is pictured as a walk or a path that you would walk on, and the danger here that they were that they were, uh, that they were committing. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the problem that they were committing is that they were desecrating the Sabbath. That they were defiling the Sabbath. And we need to understand what does it mean to desecrate something or to defile something? And it doesn't mean you do something like destroy something and vandalize something in such a way that you absolutely tear it to shreds. It, it, it could, could mean that you simply treat something as common that's uncommon you could defile something by simply treating something that's uncommon as if it was common. And so they were treating the day like it was a common day, rather than treating it as if it was holy and uncommon. Second, God clarifies we are not to do trampling on the Sabbath by saying you're not to do your own pleasure on my holy day. So he just clarifies what it means that they were trampling on the Sabbath. So God is saying here that you're not to do your own pleasure on my holy day. And so the question is, is God saying he doesn't want you to be happy on the holy day? Is God trying to take away your pleasure and delight? Is he trying to take away the smile from your face? Is God a supreme joy killer? And the answer is absolutely not. We know this because What he'll say uh, just in in the the rest of the verse here is you are to call the Sabbath a delight. So he's not saying be unhappy. (laughs) So we need to ask ourselves, what kind of pleasure is he saying not to pursue? And I think he's talking about pleasure that doesn't take him into consideration. I think he's saying pleasure that doesn't make him the aim of the pleasure, where it derives from, and the aim in in the goal of the pleasure. You see, God is the supreme pleasure, and all other things are worthless. And this leaves the door wide open to pleasure that is rooted in him. This means you can eat on the Sabbath. This means you can enjoy God's creation on the Sabbath. When you are enjoying it unto the Lord. And you can enjoy it more than anyone else can, if you understand it comes from God and leads us to God. And so the reason for this command to not do your own pleasure is that the day belongs to God. It is my day, says God, and is therefore holy. It is his holy day, and it should be kept that way. To be holy means to be separate and to be uncommon, right? And the word is used in the place of Sabbath here. It's as if he, he takes out the word Sabbath in places holy <laughs> right there. And so God says, it is my day, it is an uncommon day, and it belongs to me. And I can tell you exactly what honors me about my day. Right? And this leads us to what you're to do instead. What are you to do instead? What honors the Lord about how you are to conduct yourself on the Sabbath? Well, what honors God is that you call the Sabbath a delight. If you are to honor God with the Sabbath, then you must delight in it. That is not optional. Isn't that amazing? God tells us it's not optional that we are to call His day a delight. Literally, it says you are to call it an exquisite delight. In other words, you are to approach it as if it was a gift and a blessing. So, to delight means the Sabbath-keeping is not primarily about what you cannot do. And isn't it amazing how we twist and take things in ways that, that we totally take out the heart of it. The Sabbath is not primarily about what you cannot do. The Sabbath is about what we can do, which is greater than all other things. And that's the delight in God. Now it does become a bummer when our chief delight and our chief joy is found in entertainment and in sports. When that is our chief delight, then the Sabbath becomes a bummer and a joy killer. Right? Does this hit close to home for you? It does with me. So you must delight in God or pursue him as your delight if you're to do this. This means you must see God as your delight. This means you must, in other words, have faith in God. Because to have faith in God God is to see him as your greatest treasure. And to see him as your greatest treasure is to pursue him as your greatest delight. How would you approach a feast of every good food that you loved? How would you approach it? You'd be salivating, wouldn't you? Is that how you say that? (laughs) I'm not sure if I said that right. But you you would be be longing for it. You'd be pursuing it. You'd be excited about it, wouldn't you? The great feast. We just went to Golden Corral with with, um, a couple of my kids yesterday for their birthdays. And they had everything you could ever imagine out there. And that's the way we should approach the Sabbath, shouldn't we? In a sense of thinking about our delighting in God and all that he is. It's not boring, it's not miserable, it's a delight. John Piper said this, The measure of your love for God is the measure of the joy that you get in focusing on him on the day of rest. For most people, the Sabbath command is really a demand to repent. It invites us to enjoy what we don't enjoy, and therefore shows the evil of of hearts and our need to repent and be changed. And as strange as this, as this sounds, it requires effort, doesn't it? It requires efforts. You must make effort to see the worthlessness of the things of this world. You must take effort to see the worth of God and to enjoy the reality of all that he is. You must put into your mind the marvelous and glorious truths of all that God is if you were to ever enjoy and delight in him. You must hold them before your eyes if you're to de- delight in him. You and I must work by faith to find our delight and rest in God. And what is significant here is that calling the Sabbath a delight is parallel, and notice this in the passage here, to calling the day holy and honorable. You call it honorable when you delight in it. When you delight in God, you are calling the day honorable. They go hand in hand. To honor God is to delight in Him. They're one and the same thing. You can't honor God without delighting in Him. Because that's what faith is, isn't it? Is delighting in God. Or pursuing it if you don't have it. That is also what faith looks like. Merely acknowledging outwardly the Sabbath as a delight is not sufficient. Your acknowledgement must be translated into actions that show the reality of it in your heart. And that's what we read. If you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. Now, that's kind of strange, isn't it? He says that not taking your own pleasure, not going your own ways again here. And it's not saying don't pursue your joy in God. It's saying once again, pursuing what is ultimately, you can ultimately find your joy in, which is God at the end of every pleasure. Walking in His way, delighting to do His will and pursue your pleasure in Him. And then secondly, honoring the Lord means not to speak Vain words. Now, that's a strange thing to say, isn't it, as well? It doesn't mean sh- preach shorter sermons, right? It doesn't mean talk less. What it means is referring to talk that is worthless, talk that has forgotten or ignored God, right? So, what are the promises for those who keep the Sabbath in a way that honors God? Notice this is an if. Then, argument. If you keep the Sabbath in a way that honors the Lord, then God promises these blessings. That's what it says. You can't get around that. That's what it says here. You will experience the delight that comes from knowing the Lord. Then you shall take delight in the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? That's what it says here. If you call the Sabbath a delight, and if you do not pursue your own pleasures, then you will take delight in the Lord. The path or goal of the sabbath is to is to lead you to delight in the Lord. The Lord the Lord's regulations, you might say, are an avenue to lead us to find our true and ultimate delight and joy that's found in God. And this is why the sabbath is not a burden, but a delightful thing. Now, this is a promise God will supernaturally give you a delight in Him. What an amazing promise. What an amazing reward for those who rest in Him. Not only that, but you will be exalted to a victorious position of triumph. It says here, and I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth. This isn't talking about taking a hot air balloon up in the skies, right? It's not about the position of being high up itself, it's saying that you will triumph over your enemies. You know, you will triumph in the sense of you will be able to live a life that honors God. That's what it means to triumph, right? To follow His will, to delight in doing His commands, to delight in doing things His way as He has called us to live. That's what it means to triumph, to live by faith in this world. And it says, you will triumph. And perhaps one of our problems is that we are not living a life that is devoted to God, that we are not delighting and treasuring him, that we are not taking time out of our days to focus uniquely and separately on him. And therefore, we are not able to live for him in our lives. We can be very weak people and unable to live for God when we're not setting time apart to be with him and to focus on him. Perhaps that's why we don't fight well. Not only that, but through Sabbath keeping, you will also be preserved by the sustaining goodness of God. He says, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. (laughs) He says, I will begin, you will begin to taste of your inheritance, the goodness that God promises to his people. You will begin to have a foretaste of what awaits you in your heavenly inheritance. And one practical way of understanding this is that this foretaste will keep your eyes on what fully awaits you when you receive your inheritance. And therefore, this will keep you strong today. (laughs) We need to feed on the reality of what awaits us. And we do that when we get a little taste of it so that we can continue to remain living this life with hope in the future promises of God. We need to taste of it We need to be reminded of it because we can only live well in this world to the degree that we are aware of what awaits us in God's kingdom. Eric Little was a great example of a God honoring Sabbath oriented life. He was known as the Flying Scotsman because he could run fast. He was born to missionary parents in China and grew up to be a committed Christian. His His sister asked Eric on one occasion, Why do you run? And his reply was this, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric trained himself for the 1924 Olympics in Paris. He would go on to win the bronze for the 200-meter race. But his real strength was the 100-meter dash. And he uh, he was almost certainly assured a gold medal in this particular race. He had it in the bag, you might say. But he found out that the 100-meter dash was going to be held on Sunday. To the surprise of his teammates and the leadership of his country, he stated that he would refuse to run the 100-meter dash on the Lord's Day. When faced with a choice of glory or standing on conviction, where did he stand? He stood on his convictions. Instead, he trained for the 400-meter race, which nobody thought he could win. And what happened? He ended up winning the gold medal in the 400-meter race instead. Now, I am not mentioning this primarily because of his stand for his convictions on Sunday, as great as that was. I mention him because his life was (laughs) Sabbath-keeping. It is not that event event that indicates he had a Sabbath-oriented life. You see, after graduating from school, instead of living the rest of his life in the glory of his victory, He returned to China as a missionary. He gave his life to bring the gospel of Christ to China. He would end up dying in a Japanese internment camp in 1975. He had a Sabbath-oriented life. But I will say this, that if he did not take time out and honor the Sabbath... That I can't imagine that he could have lived a Sabbath-oriented life. And so what I think we need to take from Eric Little's life is that we need to understand that it is important that we take our Sabbath rest, that we are ready and if you're in Christ, seriously. And I think the principle of this is it's not about primarily a particular day. It's about taking time out of our busy schedules to focus and set our eyes on Christ. We need to be people who practice this. If we're to be healthy and God-honoring, living our lives for him. The Sabbath-keeping that honors the Lord is clearly Sabbath-keeping that delights in the Lord. Do you delight in the Lord? Do you take your rest seriously? Authentic faith sees the Sabbath as a delight for my good. And we won't always feel like it's a delight, but we will pursue it as if it was our great delight. If you don't have any sense of the goodness of God, then you don't have faith. It's very possible that you are not saved. It's very possible that you have never entered that rest. So how do you get there? How do you get to a point where you delight in God and honor Him as a people Living as Sabbath people who are resting in him. How do we get there? And the door of God's blessings come through repentance and faith. Christianity is a call to repentance. It's a call to our knees. Kind of like taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to him. Bow to him. Receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. That is the only rightful way to come to him. The good news is that such faith in God never remains alone. Our faith in Christ never remains alone. We are saved by faith alone, but it never remains alone. What it ends up turning into is a transformed life. Often slower than we would like it to be. But real Christianity cannot be made up. Real Christianity comes from a transformed heart and a transformed life. I don't know about you, but I need to hear this today. If you are like me, this passage is really convicting. I need to take more time away and focus on God. And doing this should not be a burden, but a delight. And the rest should fuel me to live for him in my daily life. What a blessing this will be if we learn to practice resting in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for your great name. God, your name is above every other name. And Lord, forgive us for the great sin of not being thankful. Forgive us for the great sin Of not remembering that you are our creator. That you are our savior. That you are the one who preserves us. And that you are the one who will glorify us. God, we ask you to remind us of this this week. I pray that we live in the reality that you are the God who saves. I pray that we would delight in you this week as we've never delighted in you. And I pray that that delight would turn into commitment. I pray that that delight would turn into praise. I pray that that delight would turn into people who are radically um, sacrificial for the kingdom of God. Because there is nothing we can lose if we have Christ. Lord, I pray that there's anyone in here who is not saved. I pray that there's anyone in here whom the wrath of God rightfully um, remains over them. I pray that today they would enter into your rest. I pray that they would find you to be their Savior and their Lord. And I pray that they would cry out to you today to save them from their sins. And God, may you bring great rejoicing from our midst as you are a mighty God and mighty Savior and you love to save and you will save. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.